This morning we find ourselves in a continuation of 1 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, we're going to finish the chapter this morning. And we find ourselves in a study which all of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about regarding how individuals should behave within the church. We've come to a point where Paul is specifically instructing Timothy, Timothy being a pastor and an elder in the church of Ephesus, how specifically men and women should act and how they should behave within a church service. And as I said before, some of this applies to what happens outside of the church walls. Some of it doesn't. We will find both in the passage this morning. But to be clear, the context is within church, within a church service. We have a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right in. If you would join me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, let me read those for you. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I understand there's a lot of confusion about this passage, even at face value. For example, verse 15, what in the world does that mean? We'll follow along as we unpack this verse by verse as I give you three principles for Christian women in church. Three principles for Christian women in church. The first is the ecclesiastical role. The ecclesiastical role, that's just a fancy word meaning pertaining to church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, again say, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Having already, as we saw last week, addressed the inner motivation of women, when they come to the church in the context of how they dress and the need to keep the focus for themselves as well as others on the Lord rather than themselves, Paul now continues by explaining the role women play in the context of male leadership and teachers in church or during service. Now, the first thing Paul says is that women are to receive instruction. We naturally understand this to apply to all believers. This is, in part, why you are here this morning. You come to church to receive instruction. And the Greek word Paul uses here simply means to learn through instruction. This is what happens at church. In other words, during a church service, you don't learn on your own through reading or personal study as you did in college when you're in the the study lab or in your dorm room. You learn because someone is teaching you. So you understand there are different kinds of learning. There's some where we learn on our own by reading, by researching, but there's the, te- the learning where someone is actively teaching you, such as during a sermon or a lecture or the last big meeting you had for your company. And that's what Paul is talking about. And we are thus reminded that Paul is talking about a church service rather than personal quiet times or something to that effect. In service, we are all to learn. And what makes this about women is the distinction between those who are able to teach, hence the characteristics of learning quietly and with submission. The word quietly that Paul uses here does not convey the idea of shut up and sit down. Those who want to force misogyny into the Bible would have you believe that. It is not there. It is in no way meant to be offensive or oppressive any more than what all 100 of you are doing right now is offensive or oppressive. You are sitting quietly as I teach. That's not sexist. That's not racist. That's not offensive. Now, this principle goes beyond not making noise. 
And it includes the principles of being attentive and engaged. And we understand that. In order to learn when someone is teaching, you don't just be quiet and then play on your phone or let your mind drift. You engage with the lecturer. You listen to the professor. You are attentive to the preacher. Now remember, Paul does not say, I want women to be quiet. He says, I want them to quietly receive instruction, which emphasizes the learning. So in church, there is no place for interrupting the lesson or speaking out of turn or even asking questions during the sermon. And just as you see here this morning, the men who were not actively teaching were to do the same thing, to quietly receive instruction. Now, practically speaking, in the modern American church, we have created a culture and atmosphere of people being quiet during service. In fact, our culture says to be quiet whenever someone is standing in front of a group and speaking. But if you've ever been to other countries, you know that this is not always the case, especially in third world or developing countries. And the reason for this is very simple. Aside from cultural norms, there is a very common reason that people would feel comfortable talking during service, and that is when there is other noise that they subconsciously think will drown out their own talking. This happens in poorer countries because the architecture and the busy roads, there's a lot of noise during a church service. You have to listen hard to hear the person in front, especially if that church cannot afford a microphone or a sound system. This would definitely be true of the early church, where the churches definitely did not have acoustical engineering or architecture or padding to block out noise from the outside. And this is common of the type of countries I mentioned, simply because, again, of life and architecture. Church buildings simply do not drown out the outside noise as well as they do here, and church buildings are not removed from busy streets as they are here. You've seen this principle at a wedding or large gathering where someone is giving a speech, but the outer circle of people at that reception do not realize that someone is giving a speech and so they keep talking and this table talks because that table is talking and there's this chatter that doesn't make them realize that they are to be quiet. Perhaps even this morning, those of you who walked in a little late, you are talking outside, you hear the bell ring and you walk in and you're talking even though church has started. And you don't realize that 80 people are sitting quietly because service has begun because everyone who is walking in is talking. And so you too think subconsciously, well, I can still be loud and I can still talk. Add to this very practical fact that women, more than men, are better at talking with each other, sharing, catching up, telling stories, and you have a clear understanding of why this needs to be said specifically to women in the early church. And contextually, as Paul will mention in chapter 5, some of the Ephesian women had a reputation for being gossips and busybodies. And what better time to do that than a gathering of a bunch of your friends at church? And so we see from a gender reason, from a practical architectural and cultural reason, as well as a contextual reason regarding the specific women in the Ephesian church, why Paul had to say this specifically to women. There is also a belief in, a, in the wider context, though we can't be sure, that these false teachers were promoting people, and especially women, to disrupt the teaching of Scripture during the church service, and Paul is continuing to address the false teaching that we've looked at that that permeates the entire book. Now, ultimately, the point of learning quietly is for the Christian spiritual growth through the blessing of hearing God's Word read and taught. And at the end of verse 12, we will see Paul use this same word, quiet, 
thus bracketing his teaching on how women are to behave during service. Now, silence is an expression of the next description of how women are to learn, and he writes, with entire submissiveness. The word submissiveness or to submit means to line up under. It is used throughout the New Testament to speak of an individual's response or posture under any number of authorities. It also speaks of God's submission to any number of authorities. And those under a particular authority will vary based on the relationship. The following are all commanded in the New Testament. Employees to employers, children to parents, wives to husbands, Christians to government, congregants to elders, God the Son to God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to God the Father. And God the Holy Spirit to God the Son and God the Father. Submission is not a bad word, especially when you understand that God, very God, does it as well. Now, when it comes to women in the church, who or what are they to submit to? Ultimately, this is to submit to the Word of God and what it says, and part of what it says is that only men are to teach in church. And so here, this refers to submission to the leaders and teachers of the church as well as their teaching. And again, this is something all Christians are to do. The submission, if you look at the verse that Paul says, is to be entire, all, or full in other translations. And what this means is to the highest degree, totality. So practically speaking, not just in controlling their voices or silencing their phones, but also in their hearts and their minds. And this concept really applies to everything in the Christian life as we are to submit to God's Word and any God-ordained authority in our lives with our hearts and minds, not just lip service. Let me put this in perspective. We are all quiet at church, save for a couple people in the back that are just a few months old. We are quiet. It is simply the way things are done. And there is even a sort of positive peer pressure to do so. If you have never been to church before and you came in and everyone sat down and was quiet, you'd be like, oh, I think I need to sit down and be quiet. It's common courtesy. But entire submission, which Paul mentions here, means an intellectual and willful submission to the leaders and teaching of the church not merely a social obligation. This goes back to what we talked about last week regarding how you dress. It's not just outward modesty, but having an inner self-control of your desires and your passions such that your ultimate goal is to help the church as a whole focus on God. And it's the same principle here in regards to what is on the inside being reflected on the outside. In this case, not how you dress, but receiving instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, there are several benefits of this. The first, being quiet and submitting is the best way to learn. Even when you found yourself in a college lecture and you disagree with the professor, if you want to pass the test and learn the material... You stay quiet so you can hear what he is teaching and you acknowledge and submit to their expertise on the subject matter. You don't learn as much if you are talking. Or, as I understand today, because there is free Wi-Fi on every campus, surfing the internet or watching YouTube videos or whatever it is. You're just not going to learn as well. There are people in church whom I have spoken to who tell me, I don't take notes when you preach because when I write, I miss what you say. I want to be fully attentive. We understand this. Most of us passed our classes. We get how we passed our classes, by being quiet and listening. Secondly, regardless of gender, 
There is a Christian responsibility to recognize God's calling on particular men who are leaders and teachers and not just allowing anyone who reads or knows their Bible to be ordained as an elder and to come up and preach to the congregation. And thirdly, in relation to women in general, there is a true contentedness in knowing that only men are called to be an authority over the church. And not that you need any practical reasons outside of what God has commanded, and in no way and I'm, am I trying to invite you to a pity party, but being in charge is hard. It's terrifying. And there are many times that I don't like it. Be thankful. Whether you are called because of your gender not to be in this position or whether you as a male congregant have not been called to eldership. Now let's look at verse 12. He goes on and says, I, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This verse is crucial to understanding God's design for the local church. Keeping in mind that we are still in the context of a church service, women are not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man. In other words, the teachers and elders of a church are to be men. However much the English translation of these words may offend you or have offended you in the past, it is simply saying that the elders and teachers of a church are only to be men. One point of clarification. This is an objection often brought up by those trying to debunk the face value plain sense of this verse. They say, well, it means they can't ex exercise authority only if. And what they say is that this word in the Greek means they are not to ex exercise authority over men aggressively or lording it over someone or forcefully taking authority from someone else. But those meanings are simply not in the Greek the word that is translated, the phrase exercise authority in the Greek simply means what it says here in the English, to have authority. It says nothing of violently or aggressively or harshly. So what I am saying is there are people who get around this verse and say, well, as long as the female pastors did not usurp someone else's authority or they do it in a condescending, rude way, then the Greek allows for it. No, it does not. That's not what this word means. They are meanings that people want to force onto this phrase to justify women teaching or having authority in the church so long as they do not do it angrily, aggressively, or by usurping the authority of another. Plain and simple, women are not to teach men or have authority over men in the church. And to be especially clear, this is not just referring to a title, but the actions of teaching and holding authority. It does not mean just because they are not a pastor, the pastor's wife can preach on Mother's Day, which is common in many churches I've been at. You cannot justify a woman preaching simply because she does not have the title of elder or pastor. Now that phrase, over a man, is a caveat that allows for women to teach other women or children within a local church context, and it is important to remember this context, church, service. It does not mean that men cannot learn from women. Husbands, if you are not learning from your wives, there is something grossly wrong with your ego or your marriage. This is speaking of the public teaching within a church. This also does not mean a woman cannot teach men as their occupation, for example, at a school or as a boss or manager giving a lecture or, or some sort of training at their workplace or anywhere else. They just cannot hold an authoritative or teaching position in a local church. And, as mentioned earlier, Paul ends the way he began with the phrase, 
but to remain quiet. This shows that the Scriptures do not say that women can teach if there are no men available to teach. In the same vein, there is no room to say that women can teach on certain topics or on certain days, as I mentioned earlier. As far as teaching goes, they are to remain quiet. This also reminds us of the inner attitude that women are to have by accepting this as from the Lord. As such, they are not to accept this truth with resentment or with a feeling of bondage or inferiority or inequality. And the reality is that this may be difficult for some. We understand that we often get, especially in social movements, we get upset about things that don't apply to us, but takes away an opportunity. In other words, there are people who get upset. They have no desire to teach or be an elder, even outside of what we've just read. But they have a problem with the fact that they don't have the opportunity to if they wanted to. But we have to look at the text here. And in fact, the word allow that starts this verse is a Greek word. When used in the New Testament, always refers, always in the New Testament, refers to permitting someone to do something that they want to do. In this case, forbidding something that someone wants to do. And so in this particular context, it may have very well come to Paul's attention that there were some women in Ephesus that wanted to teach or be elders in the church. Speaking of the woman in Ephesus, how do we know that this prohibition is not something that is localized to this particular church? And how do we know that this isn't something cultural, like head coverings, or a unique situation where Paul is trying to quell some sort of difficulty that only Timothy in the Ephesian church was dealing with? In other words, how do we know that this applies to all women and to today? The answer to those questions is found in our next verse, in our next principle for Christian women in church, the explanatory reason. The explanatory reason. Look at verses 13 through 14. For or because it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, the reason we know that this set of commands for women still applies today is because of Paul's use of original creation, Adam and Eve, as the reason for the rule. He does not say that this comes from a localized custom or is a reaction to a particular people and is just for them or their church. It is not something that we see even from historical evidence that it is a cultural issues such as head coverings, as we saw during the Q&A a couple weeks ago. By explaining women's roles in church through creation order, going all the way back to the beginning of things, Paul is saying that this is a universal rule just as creation is a universal reality. Let me see if I can help make more sense of this. If you were to come into our church last week, and an usher hands you a bulletin. You open up the bulletin, and you read the announcements, which, by the way, has come to the deacons and my attention that none of you do. But hypoth hypothetically speaking, let's say you read the bulletin, and you see we are taking communion at the end of service. And you turn to the usher, and you go, oh, why are we taking communion today? There's a couple answers that they could give you. They could answer you based on how they perceive the question and say, oh, here at this church, we take it the first Sunday of every month, and so today's the first Sunday of the month we're going to take communion today. In that case, you would understand that that usher was referring to the practice of this particular church. However, if you again hypothetically read the announcements in the bulletin, ask the usher, oh, why are we taking communion today? And the usher said, 
Oh, because Jesus Christ instituted it at the end of his time on earth and commanded it for all believers. You would then understand that he is referring to the command to all Christians to take communion. The first answer applies only to this church. The second answer, because it appeals to Scripture and a scriptural basis, applies to every church. And in the same way, by appealing not to Ephesus or Timothy's timidity or even the culture of the Roman Empire, but God's creative order, we see that Paul is stating that these principles for women are commanded to all Christian women everywhere. And since that is the case, let's look specifically at what Paul says about creation as a support for what he is saying about women in the church. He begins by saying that Adam was created first. Not only that, we know from Genesis chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Eve was created from Adam. Adam was created from dirt. Eve, woman, was created from Adam's body, his rib to be specific. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, this chronology of Adam first and then Eve was not happenstance. It wasn't just because someone had to come second. This was the intentional plan of God. He didn't look back and then scramble to make all of these rules for men and women. This was his plan all along. And when Paul says Adam was created first, he is talking about chronological priority and rank. Subsequently, men and women, though equal, have different roles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. This is after creation and the creation of man. It sees Adam all by himself in the garden and says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. By the way, when we look at the scriptures and biblical times, especially in the Old Testament, but also New Testament times, naming someone was very significant. So when God created man to have dominion and authority over all of creation and the animal kingdom, this small fact that we over, often overlook is very significant that rather than God saying, this is the name, Adam, this is a giraffe, this is a gazelle, he purposely had Adam name every single animal. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. You see the purpose of this. Adam is all alone. God realizes he needs a helper. He creates all these animals, brings them to him, and none of them were suitable to be a helper. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then, when we look at the next verse, we see that it was again not God, but Adam who named her. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And again, this carries great significance as it does to a certain degree in our culture. Not as much significance today, especially in America. 
But I'm pretty sure none of you would let your brother or sister or even mom or dad name your kids. In fact, I know some of you had a name in mind that you didn't reveal to anyone, and one of your parents happened to come up with the same name, and so you changed the name just so your parents wouldn't think that they named you named them after them. Naming is significant, and the person who names is significant. And all of this explains why women should not teach in church or have authority over man as indicated by the word for or because. He is explaining what he has said in the previous verses. And that's just the first reason. Chronological order of the creation of human beings. Man first, then woman. But there's a second reason which we find in verse 15. Sin entered into the world not because Adam was deceived, but because Eve was. And what we see here is not just the deception of Eve, and this is so important to Paul's point, but what we see is a violation of the greater principle of gender roles. But first, let's look at the deception. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 7. Turn ahead if you're still there. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now back to 1 Timothy. Paul doesn't just emphasize that it was Eve who was deceived, but that she was completely and utterly deceived. Two times in this verse we see the English word deceived, but they are actually two different Greek words. The first, referring to Adam not being deceived, is simply the word deceived. The second, describing what happened to Eve, is a word that means to be completely or successfully deceived. And as such, Paul says, she fell into transgression, she fell into sin. The ESV says the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The NIV says it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And in order to understand why what happened here is a significant part of Paul's bigger argument, we need to recognize something very important, and that is this. Paul, nor any point in Scripture never says that Adam didn't sin. Oh, he sinned. He sinned big time. Elsewhere, in Romans 5, Paul is very clear that sin and death entered into the world because of one man, Adam. Additionally, at the end of Genesis 3, when God God doles out punishment for everyone involved in the sin and deception, Adam is included. So again, Adam is not without guilt, but he wasn't deceived. However, the fact that Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't is not the main point that Paul is making here. And Paul, again, contrary to what people want to force into the Bible, Paul is not saying that Eve was more gullible and susceptible to error so women can never teach in the church. He's not saying that she happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time so women can never hold authority. 
So what is he saying? Remember, Paul is talking about the proper roles for men and women. When Eve removed herself from her partnership with Adam and her protection by Adam, she was left vulnerable and was deceived. In other words, disaster came not simply because she sinned in eating the fruit, but because she acted independently of Adam, thus denying God's divine order for the family, thus perverting the roles of husband and wife as leader and helper. And what's more, by obeying the, wife, the voice of his wife, Eve, and following in her disobedience of eating the fruit, Adam accepted her leadership and violated God's appointed role for him and all men. And when God lays out his particular punishment in Genesis 3 for Adam, it was because, and I quote Genesis 3.17, because, not that you sinned, not that you ate the fruit, but because you have listened to the voice of your wife. From the very beginning, in the details of the fall, God makes it very clear what he desires and what the consequences are of not fulfilling his desires of the role of male and female. Again, it's not that men cannot learn from their wives or listen to them. What Paul is doing by bringing this up is solidifying his argument of why women should not be in authority, not by saying this was a result of Eve eating the fruit, but by showing what happens when the roles of a man and woman are reversed. When you understand this, then the next verse makes a whole lot more sense, or the next verse makes sense at all. Look at verse 15 in 1 Timothy 2. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And here we find our third point. We are looking at three principles for Christian women in church. We have seen the ecclesiastical role, the explanatory reason, and now in verse 15, the effective redemption. The effective redemption. Now what Paul is saying here in verse 15 is quite simple. In light of what we have just seen in the reversals of roles in Adam and Eve, Christian women will be preserved spiritually by accepting and fulfilling their role. To put it another way, to avoid problems in the church and your own spiritual life, not to mention your marriage and family, as a woman, you are to do what only women can do and what only women are called to do. And within Paul's context, do not jeopardize your relationship with God and the church's holiness by fulfilling the roles set by God for men. Because we see what happened when Eve took on the role of authority and Adam took on the role of submission. And in the same way, there's great danger in following their negative example in the church today. And the word preserved means to be saved or rescued. It is translated saved in the ESV and NIV. We know that this is not talking about salvation because of the rest of the New Testament. It says that you are not saved by work, so surely a woman is not saved by giving birth to a child. And what about women who do not have children? Women who do not get married? Women who can't have children? We know that this not, is not implying works righteousness. What it is talking about is salvation from the personal, personal stigma inherited from Eve as her progeny. But also, a spiritual growth or sanctification in that they are working out their salvation as we all are to do, but part of how women are to do it is through the roles and guidelines for their gender such that they exhibit the marks of true Christianity. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. In the Lord, 
So as far as God is concerned, and especially for Christians, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, we saw that just now in Genesis, for as the woman originates from the man, so also, ever since that point, ever since Adam and Eve, man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Women need us as men, and men, we need women. I don't need a woman. Really? You come out of a man's womb? <laughs> Stay tuned, culture, right? <laughs> men and women need each other, but they need, but that need for each other, both spiritually and physically, is only met when we fulfill our roles. And it, when it comes to something that men need from women that they themselves cannot do, there is nothing more obvious than giving birth. Again, we see this from the beginning when in Genesis 3.16, God makes it clear that one of women's appointed roles is to have children. He designed the female body in this way. And although it is contrary to social opinion, by adhering to their biblical roles of womanhood, Christian women remove the inferior status that culture places upon them because by doing what only they can do, having children, women show, regardless of what society says, women show that they are indispensable to the world. What only they can do is summarized by the bearing of children. Female anatomy and biology prove that God designed them not just to be able to grow a child in the womb, but also to feed and nurture them outside of the womb. It is absolutely laughable. It is absolutely illogical when the world tells women that in order to stop being inferior to men, they need to stop having and nurturing children and go to the workplace, be the breadwinners, and usurp the man's authority. And the reason it is laughable and illogical is that by following that line of thought, you remove the very thing that God gave you that makes you absolutely essential to the existence of humanity. That's like telling the rain, you're inferior to the sunshine. Stop. And pretty soon everything dries out and we all die. Like men and women, we need the rain and the sun. And we need both to do what God created them to do. This is not saying that all Christian women must have children in order to grow spiritually or be spiritually preserved. But any woman who gets confused or even angered about her place in society need only look to biology to recognize a unique way in which God has chosen to honor her. And so must we. The conditions that Paul sets at the end of the verse are very much in line with his teaching elsewhere. The ability to have children and even having children is not in and of itself salvific. There's a continuation of Christian virtues that prove that someone is truly a believer. And in this case, those virtues are faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint, which is how he finishes the chapter. Very quickly, faith speaks of an ongoing trust and confidence in God. Here it is not talking about saving faith, but the continuing active sense of continuing to believe and trust in the Christian life. Love here in the Greek is that word agape love, unconditional, volitional. It is the clearest sign of a true Christian and the greatest command for all believers. Sanctity means consecration or holiness, used here in an active and moral sense, which simply means to live a godly life. And Paul adds to this last one that it must be exercised with self-restraint. And that phrase brings us back full circle to all that he has taught for women. Self-restraint in how you dress, 
self-restraint in your attitude and coming to church, wanting God to get all the attention, not yourself. Self-restraint in your role as a woman, especially in light of the role designated in the church for men alone. To summarize all of this, true obedience for the Christian woman is to fulfill her role and what she was created to do. Three principles for Christian women in the church. The ecclesiastical role, the explanatory reason, the effective redemption. In the end, when we as men or women fight against the clear teaching of Scripture regarding men's and women's roles, we are not ultimately fighting against the preacher, the church doctrine. We are not even ultimately capitulating to society. We are not even fighting our own rights or personal desires. Although all of those may be a part of it, what we are ultimately doing is failing to perceive how immensely, endlessly, perfectly, and eternally God loves us and how immensely, endlessly, perfectly, and eternally good and wise He is. Why? Why mess with something that is perfect just because you don't like it or an unbelieving world says you deserve better? My friends, if God says this is for you, there is no better. Definitely not taking up the other gender's role. Think about it. When you do not fulfill your role and your role only, and you as a man try to fulfill the roles of a woman or a woman tries to fulfill the role of a man, you know what you're doing? You guys in the back row are going to like this. You are practicing spiritual transgenderism. Created by God as a man through your behavior and roles identifying as a woman. Created by God as a woman through your behavior and roles identifying as a man. You are acting as one who is spiritually transgender. Now, I have more notes here, otherwise I would mic drop and just walk out the door right there. <laughs> I'm trademarking that, by the way, spiritual transgenderism. You can't use it. <laughs> As a general principle, following God's assigned rules for each gender is something we all must be cognizant of. The issue of biblical roles for women is more vocally and publicly railed against in society. But there are just as many men who aren't fulfilling roles of leadership and authority in a biblical manner. Choosing to stay quiet in the background or just let your wife lead the home or the pastor's wife lead the church. Whether it's a man or a woman, failure to obey in their designated roles has devastating consequences as we saw from the fall. And that's why the qualifications of church leaders are so clear and weighty, as we'll see in the next few weeks, and also why they logically follow what we have just seen in regards to men's and women's roles. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But woman will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your ingenious plan in how you created men and women 
biologically, emotionally, spiritually. And Father, we trust and know that you knew from eternity past what the devil's influence on our society would do, attacking your roles, attacking the building blocks of society, unsuccessfully in the church, reversing roles, and so now reversing genders. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to stand firm. Help us to understand the seriousness of this matter in particular, not just because of social pressure, but because it's your word. Lord, help us to question ourselves, to ask ourselves how in the world we can obey any other point of Scripture if we think we don't have to obey just this. Lord, raise up godly men for this church to be elders and pastors and preachers. Raise up godly women in this church that we might thrive as a church, that we all would fulfill our roles and that would not just be on a Sunday morning but in our homes, in our workplaces, how we raise our children, how we treat people in society. Father, remove from us the baggage that we are filled with because of our secular training, our secular education, maybe even our parents. Lord, help us to see the Scriptures and not just say, yeah, okay, but, but to fully accept it in our hearts and our minds, relishing and enjoying the difficulties of leadership, relishing in and enjoying the challenges of submission of finding the joy in all of it, not just doing it begrudgingly because we have to, but because we honor a perfect God whose plan for us on this earth is also perfect. Until that day, Lord, when we are perfect with you, reunited with you, may we strive for godliness, and may that mean fulfilling our roles. In Jesus' name.